Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Some time ago, on his Tuesday program, Father Paul observed how Western scholars, whom I now refer to with little affection as Western Universalists, often misread Genesis chapter 34, emphasizing the rape of Dina as the parable's main point. Why wouldn't they? Trapped, as Edward Said wrote, by a vision of reality whose structure promoted the difference between the familiar, Europe, the West, us, and the strange, the Orient, the East, them, such scholars are bound not to submit, but to abuse the very Bible they claim to revere. It must be strange trying to read a Semitic text from within the prison of an institutional structure in which, borrowing again from Said, a relationship of power, of domination, of varying degrees of a complex hegemony corrupts everything Western scholarship has written and continues to say about the Middle East let alone God's holy text. Again, it is God's text. It belongs to him, and he alone is our shepherd. Dina, from the Hebrew root din, means judgment or law. The same root in Arabic means faith or religion, hence the famous name Salah din which means righteousness of the faith. In Genesis chapter 34, Dina is God's judgment, not against Shechem, the son of Hamor, but against the sons of Jacob, who used Dina's rape as a pretext to break the covenant of circumcision, the covenant of brotherhood, in order to commit mass murder. One can almost hear Simeon and Levi running through the camp behind their father's back, angrily cajoling their brothers. Do you condemn the rape of Dina? Yes, Dina is the Lord's judgment, but not in the way that Western moralists imagine. In a recent article in The Guardian, an American woman expressed her curiosity about a people in travail. I wanted, she said, to talk about the faith of Palestinian people, how it's so strong, and they still find room to make it a priority to thank God, even when they have everything taken away from them. It's the question, not the silly comments of a Western newspaper. It's the question that caught my attention. The answer comes out of the sacred text, which is all they have left. 
God is not mocked, and they know it with all their heart. All they have to do is wait for him. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 10 to 11. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 510 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Father Paul has emphasized his frustration with the misuse of the word possess with respect to the land. The land is not the possession of Israel in the Bible, which is how it's translated in colonial Bibles. The land is not the possession of Israel. It is not the possession of the people. The land belongs to God. And I encourage those who are interested to pick up a copy of Land and Covenant published by OCAB's Press as a starting point in this discussion, if you wish to be taught about land and God's covenant with his children in the biblical text. But it's a bigger question in the Bible than you think. Last week I touched briefly on the question of the Amalekites in the intro to the podcast because the teaching of the Amalekites, which is a recurring teaching in the biblical epic, has been co-opted by fundamentalism recently as an excuse for violence. Once again, because of this misunderstanding of whose honor is at stake in the biblical text and who the proprietor is, who is the king, who is the judge, who is the possessor not only of the land, but of victory and of the spoils of war. Now this question comes up frequently in many examples and in many ways, and it has already come up here in the parable, the Mashal, of the catching of fish with Jesus and Peter. And Peter, like Joshua, like Saul, and frankly, like David himself, has already failed the test. And as we continue to submit to the storyline of this parable, paying close attention to terminology, we'll see once again how Jesus in the same way that Moses confronts the sons of Israel, Jesus will again challenge Peter with this question of whose honor is at stake when we are dealing with the spoils of war. Remember, here in Luke, Peter was filling himself up with the spoils and had to be brought down 
by the Lord. But because he was brought low, later in the diptych of Luke Acts, when he was faced with someone in need, in his poverty, he had something to offer, which was the words, the Torah, the instruction of Elohim. If you have a wealthy church that's, you know, very successful and thriving in worldly terms, which is how people hear this parable, just walk into any church and read their stewardship brochure. They'll talk about this parable, which is blasphemy, because you are literally not hearing what is being taught by Luke. If you quote this parable in your brochure about stewardship, you will be found wanting in acts when someone approaches you for instruction. You will have money in your treasury, but you will not have instruction on your lips. This is the question. Are there any Amalekites left on the field, or did you keep something for your church after the battle was done? This is the question that Luke is addressing here. We have just seen Peter fail the test. He's going to be tested again. Like the prodigal son, which we'll hear later, his problem was that when he came back to the father, he told his father, well, he tried to tell his father, he had a plan to tell his father about where he should sit in his father's house. He wanted to be a servant. And it was not his place to tell his father what he was going to be in the house. It was up to the father, and the father said, okay, you're my son, welcome back. And then the son told him his plan, and the father ignored his plan. Go reread the, the parable of the prodigal son. And here is Simon, who called Jesus the epistatis, who is the slave driver, says, go away from me because I'm a sinner. Jesus does not go away. Why should he? Is he going to listen to Peter? That's not Jesus' job. That's the other way around. Who's the epistatis here? And as soon as Peter says, Kyrie, Lord, he cements his place in the pecking order. So at this point, when they catch the fish, we know from Hosea the danger of multiplying. When human beings multiply, they sin. But what does it mean to sin? Does it mean they go and they live prodigally? And this? No. It means that they think they did it themselves. And that's the definition of rebellion. They didn't need God to have this take. They didn't need God in order to have these fish. They didn't need God to be successful and multiply. They thought they could do it on their own. You know, and people, will, when they talk about Genesis, when he says, be fruitful and multiply, like, well, you know, they were going to do that anyway. But the point of Genesis is to say, this is a commandment and you have a responsibility to follow the commandment because he's the Kyrios. So Peter has a duty to follow what Jesus says. And as soon as Peter says, go away from me, Jesus is like, one minute, I have a job for you to do for the rest of your life. <laughs> so he doesn't get a chance to just leave Peter, be his sinful self and go back to fishing. He then addresses him with a command, which we'll be getting at today. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, 
you will be catching men. The first thing that jumped out, Richard, once again, was the Greek of the Greek New Testament, of the Lucan manuscript in its own right. Because this word, which Christians love to talk about, kinonos, you know, and it's often translated kinonia as community. And I've come to dislike in the English language the word community. There is a better word that is often now in the global south contrasted with individualism. It's collectivism. I'm not using the word collectivism to render kinonia in English, but I like the word collectivism as an English word in opposition to individualism because it reflects the mentality of shepherdism. Because when we translate kinonia as community, which does not reflect the mentality of Eucharist, when we do that, you know, communion, community, we think of community in such a way that we are referring to a platonic whole, a group of people, as though the group is the reference. But the word collectivism, which is an opposition to the individual, in order to collect a group of people, someone is doing the collecting. And this is a point that I think is worth mentioning with respect to biblical shepherdism. So the community of Western universalism is not the same as the collectivism of the global South. And I just want our hearers on this podcast to keep this in mind. Now, what's striking to my ears is that earlier in verse 7, the English translation uses the same word, partners, but the Greek text does not. It uses a different word. It uses the term metochos, and we talked a lot about that in a previous episode. So then the question comes up, why here kinonos and previously metochos? Well, the word kinonia often has a very powerful positive function in the New Testament. As I said, it can refer to the sharing of the teaching, which goes hand in hand with the sharing of Eucharistic fellowship. As I said, this is something that is commonly understood from the Pauline letters and from other similar usages in the text of the New Testament. The Father, who is the reference in the Eucharistic collective, shares his bread and his words while his children eat. That's the collectivist, if you will, kinonia. But it can also have a negative connotation. And I want to stress this, Rich, because I think we're sitting on a razor's edge with this parable. Peter has already slipped up once, and he can still slip up again. There's always a left or a right when you are walking on this path of judgment. There's always an opportunity to slip up. And there's an example in 1 Corinthians where it is used negatively. 
because you can sit, as you know, we've talked about this many times, you and I, you can sit with the Roman patricians and in order to gain favor with those who have status in society, in Roman society, knowing full well that Zeus is a false god, Athena is a false god, Apollo is a false god, and the piece of meat that was offered to this false god is just a piece of meat. And Paul would tell you to your face, yes, it's just a piece of meat. And then you share in that meat, and you enjoy it. It's a savory piece of meat. And then you share in the words that are spoken over that meat with the editor of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the editor of Breitbart, which from my perspective, all say the same thing if you're living in Gaza. You share in their words, and suddenly you begin to sound like them, which means that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. And the word that Paul uses is kinonia. So Luke is making functional this word, which is not positive or negative, but raises a question. With whom now, Peter, are you sharing fellowship going forward? The other term that I want to raise is this beautiful word in Greek, zogron, which means to catch. But it has the connotation, again, even in the Greek, of catching alive, and it corresponds in the Septuagint to this beautiful word in Hebrew. And when I hear Hebrew, I hear Arabic, and when I hear Arabic, I hear Hebrew. And the word haya, it's the heavy H, haya, means to be alive, to stay alive, but it can also mean to recover with the implication, as it is in the Greek, of catching alive. So when you catch men, you catch them alive, which brings me back to the Amalekites. When you catch someone in conflict, you cannot keep the spoils for yourself, Peter. It's a test. This isn't about your honor or your victory or your possession, Peter. And of course, again, you hear Hebrew. More often than not, you're also hearing Arabic. Haya means life in Arabic. Yahya means he lives. So there's an example of this word being used, one of many examples in the, in the Pentateuch where it's used with respect to the spoils of war. Moses, in Numbers 31, was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds, who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, Have you spared Hayatem, the women? It's the same word. Haya. Have you recovered alive the women. And Moses is upset because the women are the possession of the Lord. They are not the possession of the sons of Israel. It's the same question that came up with respect to the Amalekites. 
The Amalekites are also Semites. You cannot take the Amalekites alive or their cattle for your own possession. Nor in this example in Numbers can you take the women of your opponent as your own possession, sons of Israel, because they belong to the Lord. And now, Peter, you're going to take these men that you're catching alive as though they belong to you? Be careful. Because when you make a single proselyte, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Scripture itself is Nahashik. When you hear the parable, you yourself are being tested by God. Do not fall in the trap. This relationship between Peter, James, and John, we know is a trap that's being laid. And the danger is that Peter might fall in, which in Galatians we find out that he does fall in, even after making a grand statement in Acts. That's for another day. But here we have this interesting contrast that you mentioned between the metahos and the kinonos, because kinonos is partakers. These are like business partners, it sounds like when you first hear it. When they have the spoils, they got to split it up in at least three parts here. You've got Peter, and then you've got James, and you've got John. Everyone is going to split up these fish in three different ways. They're different than the guys who were helping out and were coming along with. That doesn't necessarily mean that they get a piece, right? And who gets a piece is an important part. Like you said, Father, the whole idea of the inheritance and who gets a piece. I mean, when we live in a society that thinks God helps those who help themselves, it assumes that people can help themselves. It assumes that your progress report or your performance review reflects some kind of reality. And the reality that it reflects is that the person who you work for, your boss, your epistatis, is not displeased with you. You're following directions. Okay. Does that mean that you are going to benefit materially because of this? Maybe, maybe not. There's been many people who have displeased their bosses who are doing just fine. There are many people who have pleased their bosses who are scraping just to get by. So the increase comes from God. It does not come from your performance review. And I've said that so many times in a corporate setting to Christians in a corporate setting. And they have a hard time believing it. They still want to think that it's their effort that gets them their raise when it's just a gift from the Lord. As Peter says, go away from me because he doesn't think he's worthy of this. I have a friend who's a manager at work, and he has an employee who needs to go to the dentist and is complaining about how hard it's going to be because he has to go to the office on that day because they're required by their hybrid rules. And his boss says, look, your dentist is by your house. The office is an hour away. Work from home that day. And the employee says, but the rule says I have to go into the office. And the manager says, I'm your manager, and I'm telling you, stay home. This is how Americans don't understand who the epistatis is. Now, the problem that Peter has is he might become a kinonos with James and John, who eventually we find out think that according to their own deeds, they 
earn the grace of God. And this is what is the danger that Peter might fall into. So an important part of this Zogron that you talk about, Father, the one who catches alive, is that it says, Essi Zogron, you, singular, will become someone who catches men, who catches humans. When he says it, he does not say it in the plural. Remember, in Greek, you can have you that's to a plural audience and you to a singular audience. He does not say you plural as if he's addressing it to Peter, James, and John. He says to Simon, Esi Zogron, you, singular, are going to be this catcher. So this is about you. He has not addressed, Jesus has not addressed James and John. They're just partners. At this point in the book of Luke, James and John are Simon's business partners. That's all they are. We don't have to worry about them. Now, we know what's going to happen. So this idea that Peter is going to catch humans alive as if a spoil of war that's dedicated to God, not for him to do with what he wants, dedicated to God. James and John are no longer his business partners. There is someone who owns the deep and all the fish that swim in it. And Peter's allowed to catch a few of them. Now, it seems like a lot to Simon, but, you know, to God who owns all the fish, it's just a piece. Of all the humans, Simon may boast in how he's catching all these people. But Simon has to understand that he's functioning as a Zogron, someone who is catching alive to dedicate to God. These are God's humans, God's flesh. The flesh belongs to God. The life belongs to God. The Ruach belongs to God. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything. Banda, all, everything, kullu, everything, and followed him. I just want to take a moment to hear that statement, which many people from many generations have heard and taken to heart. It is the call of the shepherd coming out of this text. It is a clarion call to take seriously the black and white question of the text. There's no gray area. There's no twilight. There's no ambiguity. There's no complexity. There's no sophistry. There's no marketing plan. There's none of this nonsense that you find in the spin of the corporate media that puts lipstick on a pig to justify murder. There's just the simple question. Are you committed to teaching and to feeding the people with this bread or not? 
Are you interested in filling your own stomach, Peter, and increasing your own wealth and your own bounty, which is what American religion is? American religion is building a box and filling it with junk for your own glory. And then saying, look how much I love God. And you do because you are your own God. You love God lots. Or is it about emptying your box and instead filling your heart with instructions so that when someone approaches you, you have something of value to say? That is really what this parable is about. And then the parable ends with a moment of truth. Will you leave everything and throw it away? Who cares about money? Who cares about growth? Who cares about prospering and all of the nonsense of this settler colonial capitalist society that is now just killing everything in sight to feed itself? which is what happens in the book of the 12 riches you've been explaining in your teaching Hosea. And now, you know, your work on Joel, like who cares? Is that what you want? Go for it. Or are you going to leave that all behind so that later in Acts, Peter, when someone asks you a question, you actually can teach them something of value. That's what this is about. And even here, scripture is Nahashik because it says they left everything and followed him. But did they really? Because we know that people can change their mind and go back and pick up some of the stuff they left and try to reinvest it in the stock market. We know that that's what people do. Yeah, this is the question. Did they forsake it? Did they forsake everything? And in Greek, you know, one of the things that's subtle that's hard to bring out in the English is that it's very clear when you have a series of verbs in Greek, which is the main verb and which are more secondary verbs. So if you wanted to translate this literally, it would say, having forsaken everything, they followed him. So the main verb is followed. It qualifies the following with the forsaking. And significantly, it's in the plural. Before, remember, Jesus was speaking to Simon, and now it is they who are following him. So the call goes to Simon, and Simon has already stubbed his toe. James and John, we're going to have to see what ends up with him, because evidently they want to get in on this as well, even though they're not called. Does this mean they're being obedient? Not sure. The text doesn't give us a way to understand this yet, but James and John have not declared Jesus to be epistatis or even kyrios. They have not spoken a word yet. They have not even taken an action. So far, all they did was, having forsaken everything, follow him. So we'll see, do they follow him? Because, you know, one of the things I like about Hebrew is this subtle difference because you have... Shuv, which means turn. And you can either turn towards the Lord, which is loyalty, or you can turn away from the Lord, which is disloyalty or apostasy. But it's the same word, 
turn. You turn towards or turn away. At the moment, they're turned towards. But that doesn't mean they can't fall out of line, fall off the ranks, fall out of the path, and go back to recover the exact things they left behind. So we're going to have to see. And, you know, bringing up Hosea and Joel, we see in Hosea, the problem is the people think they did something to earn everything they got. And God tries to convince them that it was because of him that they had everything, and he makes fun of their love of him because he says, you know, you talk about love, but your love is like the morning dew. As soon as the sun comes up, it evaporates. In Joel, we see what happens, that they're really cut down to size in the worst day ever in the history of humanity to the point of near destruction, at which point the nations who destroyed them say, look what we did. (laughs) they have no God to defend them. And so God says, ah, shoot. And then he has to restore Israel to show the nations that it was not because of the nations that Israel was destroyed. It was because of him. God always has to come out on top for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his honor. And here we have to see, is Simon really dedicated to the glory and honor of God by following his son, and by extension, are James and John really here for the glory and honor of God through his son, Jesus? We're going to have to see. You and I know it's probably not going to end up well, but we'll see. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.